Tour de France is just a couple weeks away, and we here at VeloNews have the perfect piece of literature to take you inside the race. It's the 2018 official guide to the Tour de France. It's a bright yellow magazine issue with Rigoberto Oran, Roman Bardet, and Chris Froome on the cover. Every year, we here at VeloNews put out the official North American guide to the Tour de France. It includes lots of information to help you follow along with the race. We have detailed info on the favorites, the teams to watch, and most importantly, the routes and even the climbs. So if you plan on watching the most decisive days of the Tour de France, you can have this magazine issue along that tells you exactly where the decisive moves are gonna be, who the protagonists are, and even some inside information like the rule changes that the UCI enacted after Peter Sagan was kicked out of the race last year. We have a big feature on that. So go down to your local bookshop or your Whole Foods, find the issue, and follow along. Okay, on with the show. You are tuned into the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here in the basement of the Vela News World Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, oh, whoa, who, hey, hey, buddy, you can't just walk in here. You can't just walk in here, sit down, put on the headphones, and get right up to the microphone there. Oh, wow, it's cycling. It's TV's Alex Howes. Hi, Fred. Hi, Alex. You just, you just what, think you can walk in here in the studio and be part of the podcast? You called me, man. I know. It's true. Uh, Vela News Podcast, we have Alex Howes. Uh, team EF Education first, Draypack presented, powered by, presented by Cannondale uh, in the studio today alongside Dane Cash. Hello, Dane. Hey, Fred. And myself. It is monsoon time in Boulder. We've been dodging hailstorms and thunder and lightning. And Alex, have, have you been out training in, the, in these hailstorms? What's going on there? Uh, as a professional, I try and uh, stay as dry as possible. So no, no, I haven't. Mm. I like the way you spun that, because I thought you were going to say, as a professional, you like to train as hard as possible all day. But a little twist, actually. No, I, I, yeah. I go around the rain. Yeah, uh, that's good. They have this thing called radar. Uh, actually, mm. we have like, the, the weather updates on the little Garmin, so it, just, it pretty much tells me to turn left, right? Wow. Clutch. Man, look at the future here. The <laughs> future has arrived. I just look out the window and I go. I went out yesterday about 5 p.m., was back indoors by about 5.15 p.m., just totally <laughs> so. Just yeah, hating no life. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, we have a great show today. We're going to talk about um, the Tour de Suisse. We're going to talk about the Dauphiné. We have a long chat with Alex about what it's like to be a professional cyclist in the month of June when you're waiting to hear whether or not you've made it onto the Tour de France team and all of the fun emotions and stress that comes along with that. Uh, and later in the show, we're going to hear from Hoodie, Andrew Hood, out in Spain, because he did some interviews at the Movistar team camp um, and had a, a discussion with a, another journalist, Matt Rendell, about Nairo, the state of Nairo. Yeah, apparently, apparently Nairo's real fit right now. Uh, <laughs> but let's get to it. We had the Tour de Suisse wrap up a few days ago. Dane, take us through the Tour de Suisse. What happened? Richie Port won. What are, what are the storylines coming out of this race? Yeah, uh, the storyline is that BMC's team time trial squad took the lead in the first day and pretty much didn't let go, uh, which was not all that surprising. I mean, if you put a team time trial the first stage of the race, you might get that. Uh, that's what happened. Uh, 
Richie Port was the man in the yellow jersey after I think five stages. He did a good ride of his own. It wasn't just the team time trial squad. He put some time into everybody on some of the climbs. Nairo Quintana had a really nice ride to win a stage, claw back some time, but nowhere near enough to uh, knock Richie Port off. And then on that that final time trial, BMC won again. Stefan Kung won the time trial. Richie Port had a nice ride. TJ Van Garden finished third in that time trial, so BMC's got to be happy with their form here. Yeah, the performance that is going to stand out to me, I believe, is stage six in an uphill finish that was won by Soren Craig Anderson. And Richie Port didn't so much attack the peloton as he just kind of got on the front and went really, really hard and then went really, really hard again. And no one could go with him. Yeah, we seem to do that at Twitter Down Under. Yeah. Where he kind of on Malunga Hill, he'll be like, all right, I'm just going to keep going and going and going. And then eventually people drop off. That's pretty much what happened here, except. I mean, not to not to denigrate the Tour Down Under or anything like that, but the Swiss Alps are a little bit harder than Malunga Hill. I don't know. I've never ridden Malunga Hill, but that's my that's my take on this on this uh, <laughs> they're, hill. They're significantly harder. All right, okay, the, the pro says it, so it must be true. I think this is con- confirmation, though, that you know what we see every June is that Richie Port looking really strong heading into the Tour de France. Um, every year we put him on our list of contenders, the men who might be able to take down Chris Froome. Last year we had him as high as second place. This year we kind of bumped him back a notch because of his uh, shaky performances at the three-week format in the last few years. But definitely a guy to watch. He has been uh, giving some interviews after that race, basically saying that he he feels like he's almost up to his peak for the Tour de France. Not quite at the peak, which I guess that's what June is all about, right? I mean, that's about doing races like the Dauphiné and the Tour de Suisse to get to your peak. Alex... You've done both of these races. I know that the Dauphiné is kind of fresh in your mind because you just did it a few weeks ago, but which one of these is a harder race? Uh, honestly, I think probably the Dauphiné. Uh, it's just really intense. Mm-hmm. Tour de Suisse, mm, I wouldn't say it's more chilled out, but uh, the Dauphiné seems to really stack the favorites in there. You have like Every guy in France that uh, wants to do the Tour de France is, is going full gas there at the Dauphiné. Swiss, you know, you have, you have your hitters, but uh, less depth, I think. It seems like the climbs of the Dauphiné oftentimes are a little bit steeper. Oh, I guess the Dauphiné tends to just mirror whatever the Tour de France is going to look like. And this year, you know, the Swiss really lacked the, like, the Solden stage, the big, long grinder of a climb. It looked like more hilly uh, stages, whereas the Dauphiné had a couple of pretty long, punishing climbs in it this year. Yeah, I mean, we had like four uphill finishes. Uh, we had, I think the last stage, it was like an hour climb out the door, pretty much. Uh, that Ugh. was, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Did some of the best numbers of my life, came into the front group uh, at the top, and uh, yeah, there was like 90-something guys there in the front group. So. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> good good job, everybody. Let's uh, pat each other on the back and continue to beat the crap out of each other. You know, one of the storylines we've been following around these two races is how the delayed start of the Tour de France this year, you know, it's starting the 7th of July as opposed to the 1st or the 2nd. Uh, what impact that has had on some of these marquee riders and teams as they get ready for the Tour. Did you know, I mean, did you feel any difference in um, how strong people were, how motivated they were at the Dauphiné? Uh, no, not really. Um, I think if that would affect either of the races, it would be Swiss. Uh, in the past, it's like, you know, nine, ten days, something like that. Um, and being closer to the Tour, I think that would is what 
traditionally we kind of water down Swiss a little bit, um, but with a little more space in there, uh, you saw a lot of the big favorites choosing Swiss over over Dauphiné. Yeah, both of them looked really hard. And then the Swiss always seems to have like at least three days of rain. <laughs> yeah. Maybe four days of rain. Yeah, and Romany's like the same thing. It's like beautiful, but at the same time, you can't really see anything because it's just clouds and fog. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Switzerland's more for, you know, eating chocolate and counting your money than racing outside. Very expensive in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Also, looking at cows with the huge bells, I always thought that was a cliche <laughs> thing. And then I went to Switzerland, I saw giant cows with huge bells around their necks everywhere. Yeah. Love that. So, Dane, other than Richie Port, uh, who should we have our eyes on coming out of Tour de Suisse? I mean, we had a number of marquee riders, we had another number of really good performances. I'm thinking of Stefan Kung who uh, was the first wearer of the yellow jersey. But uh, who else really impressed you at well, this race? I thought Nauer Quintana looked really good on the climbs. Uh, he was always going to have trouble winning the race because it was pretty heavy on the time trials. That's not his forte. But he looked great uh, in terms of the GC guys. Some of the guys I, I'm definitely coming away with thinking, huh, I guess I'm going to have to watch them a little more, are sort of outside of that GC conversation. Sonny Cobrelli won a sprint ahead of Sagan, ahead of Fernando Gaviria. I mean, he's a good rider, but those are really good names. Arno DeMar won a sprint ahead of some big names, same thing. So... Two guys who I don't think people would have expected to beat that company, uh, who, you know, going into the tour, we're going to have to watch them a little bit more. Cobrelli on some of those hillier stages, I think, and DeMar, who knows? I mean, he's pulled some pretty impressive performances out when people didn't really expect them in the past. So maybe those are guys to watch for the sprints. I'm also going to have my eyes on Soren Craig Anderson. You know, this is a guy who has excelled at like cobblestones and the heavy classics and done some of his best rides, I think, Gent Wevelgum. So to see him win an uphill stage uh, after riding in a breakaway for a good chunk of the day, um, I mean, that was a pretty impressive ride. Shows how strong he is. I think he's a guy who has been trying to trying to kind of find his way at Sunweb. You know, Sunweb is so built around Tom Dumoulin, and he's a guy who's really tried to be kind of a, a marquee guy for the classics. It didn't really happen this year, so to see him have a ride like that, um, that that's pretty impressive. I wonder if they're going to let him off the leash for the tour or if he's going to be strictly in uh, Dumoulin shepherding duties. Yeah, I, I feel like if anybody... Uh, it just seems like more and more these days people trying to take on Sky. I think they know they're going to have to have less people off the leash and more people shepherding their their Tom Dumoulins or their Rigoberto Urans or whoever it might be that they're that they're shepherding. Yeah. You know another takeaway from the Tour de Suisse and this happens every year. Man, that trophy's awesome. It's just a freaking <laughs> lava lamp. Look at that thing. And it's like it's huge. So the fact that Richie Port who is not huge mm. is pick, is carrying this thing at the end. I mean it was like 3 quarters the size of him. I got to think that's one of the better trophies out there. It sort in of looks world tour racing. It looks like uh, like the Giro's trophy times two. It's like the Giro has a cool trophy. No way, dude. The like Giro's trophy is, like, is cool. This thing know. looks like if you knocked it over, it would fall apart. Maybe a little like, bit. Sorry, yeah. Tour yeah. Swiss. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the budget lava lamp that like every college freshman has in his <laughs> dorm. Alex, what's the coolest thing you've ever won racing a bike? Oh man. Um, Other than like a pat on the back and hug from mom. I don't know, man. The uh, the trophy from uh, the Breckenridge stage last year is like 12 pounds and very sharp. So, I mean, if anybody breaks into my house, the first time I'm reaching for is that trophy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weapon. It's like a, it's supposed to look like a chain ring, but yeah, it weighs like <laughs> oh, gosh. 12 pounds. Is it bike art? <laughs> yeah. Is it a disc rotor actually? Is it you know, dangerous and meant to cut? Yeah. Sharper. Oh, uh, bike art as trophy. What'd you win for that Denver stage at the USA Pro Challenge a few years back? 
uh, it was kind of this funky looking plaque thing. Okay. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Not a cow. It wasn't or, a weapon. No. Was it or Denver local? I feel like they should have given you like an iron bong or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, I think the best trophy prize that you can get is that uh, Trobro Leon piglet. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, got my eye on that pig. Mm, so. mm, I like it. Uh, guys, let's move on. I want to talk more about um, Swiss versus Dauphiné in terms of um, tour prep because this year it really did look like a lot of the stronger guys went to Swiss. That's not to say there weren't strong guys at Dauphiné. Um, but you know, as we head into the Tour de France, this is the phase now where people are going to be looking at these two races to assemble their tour team. So when we look at the team like BMC, Dane, who do you think is making the cut? Oh man, Richie Port. Well, yeah, he'll make the cut. <laughs> yeah, TJ, Greg Van Avermaet. Yeah, I think Stefan Kung definitely makes the cut. I think I, mean, whether... I think Kung maybe is like half the team now. Yeah, I mean his engine clearly is is it's huge. And that's just the kind of guy that they're going to need for some of those flatter stages. That first week's tough. And I think a lot of teams are worried about that first week. So having a guy like Van Avermont and a guy like Kung kind of shepherding the likes of Richie Port, whose bike handling skills eh, maybe leave something to be desired. Yeah, I think you, you like having those guys around. Alex, you ever ridden with Kung? You have any Kung memories? King Kung? I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I've raced him, but uh, I don't know. I. I I feel like this team has no shortage of like giant Swiss dudes, like Mickey Shar. Yeah, Basically, yeah. like they can clone a Mickey Shar and then just put them on the front during a hilly day and make everyone feel really bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if Simon Garens is going to go to the tour. I mean, I think he's been talked about as a tour starter for them, uh-huh. and he hasn't really done a lot this year or last year or the year before that, for that matter. But I think they do kind of want that kind of veteran presence as well. So that'll be interesting to see whether they bring him along. Well, I mean, that's always the storyline is like, what can they do against Team Sky? Yeah. And if Sky has, you know, a number of rollers and then they have like, uh, you know, some of the best climbers in the world, it's like, what can BMC hope to do against that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Painful. Um, Alex, I got to ask you about this. So we're watching the Dauphiné. And it's a fun race. And then all of a sudden on Twitter, like after, I can't remember which stage it is, there's this clip that comes out. And it shows you and your buddy Keel. Oh, man. You're coming across the line. And then right at the last second, you do the bike throw. Um, and like the announcers go crazy. And this was like retweeted a bunch. This was that you owned bike Twitter for a good solid you went afternoon. Viral. Yeah. yeah, that's the most famous I think anybody ever got for getting 133rd. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, first of all, you know, I just I have to say as a fan of the sport I do not I do not endorse this at all like cyclists on other teams being friendly with one another I want you to hate each other yeah. I want you to just like you know instead of sprinting keel like that in a playful manner you should just crash the guy out fisticuffs that's what we want to see yeah uh, if it makes you feel any better he was like just off the back of the gruppetto and I knew he was having a bad day so I went back and. Uh, you know, I was going to shepherd him to the top and make him feel better, and I, I ended up mostly just half-wheeling him the whole way up oh, the hill. Man. So just you know, getting that psychological dig before the, before the final sprint. I like that. Maybe talk about how, like, how low your heart rate is yeah. as you're going at that pace. Try and laugh as much as you can. You know? <laughs> give, give him my food that I have because so, I don't need it. You know? <laughs> Stuff like that. So tell us the backstory there. What's, what was it like on the day? And you have a long history with Keel. What's, what's your history with Keel? 
Uh, I mean, we've been buddies for a long time. Um, originally, I didn't really want to be his buddy because he had a mullet, and uh, mm. then that went away. And then it's come back, and so you know things are a little touch and go at the moment. But uh, yeah, that that day in particular, it was an uphill start. Um, it was like you know ten minutes, just just flat out and bodies everywhere, and then things came back together and. It just turned into one of those days where you just you just on the grind. Um, I think we were doing like fifty something k an hour through the valley all day, <laughs> and then you turn, go up the hill, and you're like, man, we're still going fifty k an hour for first two k. So it's a bad day for Keel, you know. Yeah, and so when you have a day like that where it's just pain cave. Uh, what does it feel like to like be able at some point to look over and see a friend, a friendly face, and uh, I don't know, be able to ride with a friend to the finish line? Uh, it's nice, aside from the fact that when you look over and see your friend, you realize that their face looks just like your face, and they look terrible. Um, it's it's uh, it's good and bad. It's good mm-hmm. and bad. But. So I feel like in Swiss, then there was a similar clip. I feel like a week later, I don't know who it was, but there was another sort of mid-pack, back-of-the-pack bike throw, like silly, playful bike throw that went You started a trend. Yeah, I feel like you may have started a trend here. Trendsetter. Mm, uh, I mean, I think that's just modern cycling in general. You know, you fight for everything you can get. Um, UCI points go 60 (laughs) deep, but, you know, you're trying to make Tour de France team or something like that. You know, 133rd looks a heck of a lot better than 134th. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is this going to be what pulling an Alex House is? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Like pulling an Alex House is now the the term for sprinting the guy for 134th place? (laughs) Like when Froome goes for the KOM points on like stage 20 of the Tour de France to take it away from some French guy that you've never heard of. Yeah. Oh, he's pulling an Alex House, oh, just sprinting man. for eighth or yeah. Totally pulled a house. <laughs> I think it's just any jerk move, really. Oh, okay. We'll keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, keep keep your eyes out for Alex House, everybody. Pull the house. Uh you you talked about that earlier though. When you're going for the Tour de France team, 133rd looks better than 134th. Let's get into it, Alex. So you, Alex, you will not be going to the Tour de France this year, correct? Uh, if I had gotten 132nd, maybe, but okay, no, as of now, no. But you have gone to the Tour de France on two occasions before? Yeah. So you have been in the running for the Tour um, on a few occasions, so you are a good expert to take us through um, the next part of the discussion. You know, online today we have a writer journal from Brent Bookwalter talking about what it's like to be both selected for the Tour de France team and then also be in contention for the Tour de France team and not be selected. And what this month of June looks like from an emotional perspective. So I'm curious if you have a story to tell about one of the instances in which you were selected for the Tour de France and what that process looked like. And then conversely, maybe one when you were in contention, you didn't get selected and what that process looked like. <laughs> uh, so it's, um, I mean, most teams now, um, they try and like, lay it out a bit before um, before you had nine starters, maybe 10 guys, 11 guys going for it. Um, and it's kind of, <laughs> it's funny because all year, you know, your teammates, you know, they're like your brothers. And then all of a sudden it's like you're on the episode of The Bachelorette or something. And you're just like, all right, man, I hope that guy falls off, falls down the <laughs> stairs or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, 
you get a lot of guys racing guys that you know do the dauphiné you have a job you're done with your job and then you know your your teammate who also had a job comes blowing by you you know and you're just like dude we're supposed to be saving it for tomorrow it's like no man i'm getting 132nd you can just go roast in 134th uh so it's yeah i don't know little uh little doggy dog um yeah it's it's just a reality tv show um but luckily uh the two times that i thought i was going i ended up going but there was another time where i was in the running and i was the 11th guy and somehow i made it through the dauphiné i have no idea and I was absolutely on my hands and knees, and I talked to the doctors, and I'm like, guys, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm dying. I'm, I'm already dead, actually. I'm dead. Um, pretty, please bring me back to life. And so they, some dude stuck a camera up my nose and turned out I had a giant cyst in my head. Um, and so I went on antibiotics, and I was on antibiotics, so I said, you know what? I'm going to Morocco because the best thing to do when you're on antibiotics is eat stuff that would normally give you food poisoning. So I went to Morocco and they called me up in Morocco and they said, Alex, I'm really sorry, but we don't think you're going to make the tour of the team this year. I said, well, that's great because I'm in Morocco, so I'm going to go ride a camel. Did the cyst ever leave your head or is it still there? Um, you know, I don't actually have photographic evidence that it is left, but uh, I like to believe that I, I can breathe again. How would you describe the levels of stress um, in those months of June, in the years that you were selected, you know, what, um, what was the stress like and how did you kind of emotionally make your way through the, through those periods? Uh, well, the first time it was, it was a lot of stress. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh man, you're, you're going to make it. You're going to make it, man. You do riding great. You're going to make it. And it's like, and in, in your head, you're thinking like, there's no freaking way they're going to take me to Tour de France. Are you kidding me? Um, so uh, really, you just you do whatever you can, um, you know. Try and play nice to the directors, you know. Maybe buy them a beer at the training camp or something. Schmooze a little. Uh, train super hard. Uh, that's usually what ends up happening is everybody goes to training camp uh, after the Dauphiné and um, just beats the living crap out of each other until everyone is just absolutely crippled and they probably shouldn't race the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's in line with some of the feedback we heard um, last week in some of those uh, interviews I had done from the Tour of California. You know, uh, Lawson Craddock and Mickey Shar talked about, you know, the sort of the negative effects that can happen when there's a lot of pressure put on the month of June and guys end up racing each other within the races or racing each other at training camps and show up to the Tour sometimes on the back end of their peak because they've pushed themselves too hard. Um, I think it was uh, uh, Rolf Aldog who talked about, you know, how you, as a director, like how you manage that, you know? And he said that, well, what they do is they start with 12 riders and they pretty much have the, the, the Tour de France team picked out prior to those June races. They're just kind of looking at those races to see if someone really has terrible form or get sick or something like that. But that's not the way it sounds like that all the teams do it. There are some teams that like to create that competition within the competition because they feel like it like really brings the best out of their riders. Um, I don't know, Dane. Well, if you were designing, Dane, if you were designing yeah. Yeah. a method for choosing a Tour de France team, what would you do? Tell nobody the long list until <laughs> like a week before. And then in that last week, just go to training camp and see who really, 
Like, not even Froome gets to know whether he's going to the tour. Well, wow. Froome doesn't know whether he's going to the tour, actually. Ha. Uh, but not even Nairo. Not even Richie gets to know whether they're going to the tour. You just throw him into a training camp, and then it's just madness. And then, yeah, whoever comes out on top, that way you don't have this problem where you're peaking too early. Because, you know, you peak for Dauphiné, then maybe you're a month too early. Mm-hmm. This solves that problem, and you get good performances out of guys. I think that's the real solution that we need here. Alex, what uh, what is the advantages and then the major disadvantages of this model? <laughs> uh, well, you probably wouldn't know when to take a break earlier in the year. Um, you know, fine point. A lot of guys like to skip skip something like California because they want to take take a little time down uh, so they can ramp it back up. But uh, you know, honestly, I think the fear method is probably the best method. It seems to produce the best, most results. So, uh, my method is somewhat similar where you're not really telling anyone and then at some point you spring a time trial or like some type of like bike challenge Mm. on people where you're like okay we're gonna have this uphill time trial and then we're gonna have a you know team time trial of three split up between you know people at random and then we're also gonna have I don't know, a game of checkers. It's like a wall. <laughs> yeah, basically have like a an omnium created by... Like an like a SAT cycling tactics totally. test. Yeah. Yeah. SAT cycling tactics you, test. You have 45 minutes to complete the test. Yep. Here's your number two pencil. Yep. And uh, we'll pick the tour team off of that. Well, what about what about like just a stupid test of strength, um, like an uphill time trial, or just something to assess numbers? Just like totally like going off of the like oh six watts per kilo. What if you t- ch- tried to choose a tour team based off of pure numbers in a lab test? Ooh. Well, depends on if they can race a bike beforehand. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. Well, we're talking about guys on the team already. So yeah, if you were just going for like who's peaking right now, who's at the strongest point, what, what's the drawback from choosing it that way? Uh, well, so one thing about the tour is that uh, it's, I think it, I, I don't have kids, but I think it's probably about the same as having a newborn baby in your house. Um, like you have no say in what, what goes on during your day. Um, you're constantly on somebody else's schedule, like things are constantly popping up. You have a designated time when you think you're going to be able to sleep, but usually you don't get much sleep. Uh, you're sleeping in crappy hotels, you're always on the move. And then, you know, between, for like four to six hours a day, like you, you think you're going to die. Um, you're pretty confident you're going to die. Uh, so, I mean, maybe you're not going to die if you have a newborn baby, but you know, there's definitely life at hand uh, in both circumstances. So you have a lot of guys that produce really good numbers, but uh, don't deal well with the internal stress of the race. Um, and that starts to show up pretty quick uh, after five or six days. Mm, I um, like it, and yeah. That, and that's, you know, that, that's pretty unique to the tour. Um, you know, the Vuelta and the Giro, they have, they have stress involved as well, but um, the tour is definitely... The tour is the tour. Yeah. So maybe the best selection strategy would be to give every rider on the team a newborn baby, see how they handle it for three weeks, and then the healthiest babies at the end, those riders get to go to the tour. <laughs> maybe, maybe like uh, your, your training camp scenario with one of those home ec eggs that you, you can't break. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, God, I yeah. like it, yeah. Or the baby doll that you yeah. can't forget at the mall or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where's the baby doll? Oh, Dang it, I'm going to Richie fail. forgot his baby. No tour for Richie. <laughs> Uh, no, that is interesting, though, that, you know, w- watts and numbers can't tell you how someone is going to uh, 
uh, be impacted under the stress of having um, 25 annoying, pushy, sweaty people like me and Dane swarming you at the finish when you're out of breath to ask you a bunch of asinine questions and then (laughs) having to make your way to a bus and then getting lost on your way to your B-grade hotel. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess that watts per kilo can't tell you how someone's going to deal with that. No, I can't, I can't prepare you for the 25 of us saying, hey, you got 30 seconds to chat. I know you just climbed for an hour. You just got like 30 seconds to answer some <laughs> questions there. I know yeah. you look really salty and you just urinated on yeah, yourself. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's just 30 seconds. What's yeah. 30 seconds? Yeah. It'll end up being three minutes, but what's Oh, yeah, seconds? it's true. Yeah. He, he knows. Yeah. <laughs> Someday we're going to have to take the listeners into what the finish line of the Tour de France oh, actually yeah. looks and feels like. Because I have to say, I've now covered a number of sports, hockey, baseball, basketball. Cycling has the worst model ever for interaction between media and athletes because... A guy like Alex, he's been out there in the saddle for five, six hours, pushing himself to the limit, pushing himself beyond the limit. Uh, He rolls across the line after sprinting his good buddy for 180th (laughs) place, and he's completely exhausted and, you know, nearly in a coma. And then all of a sudden, we get to swarm him. Mm. And fans are there, and there's a helicopter overboard. Handlers are there. Yeah, we're trying to ask you all these questions. And so it's amazing that any information transfer happens at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's funny because uh, a lot of teams, so when you finish, a lot of guys like like to have the little mini can of Coke, you know, and most teams by now have banned that because uh, it's the stuff that you, you know, clean your engine with and it's got sugar in it and it's bad for your teeth and there's bubbles. Um, and, yeah, a lot of times when you finish, like all you want is that can of Coke. Like, just give me, just give me, give me a treat. I just finished. Just give me a treat, you know? And it's like, no, you have to have this bottle of water. Enjoy your water while Fred pesters you. Yeah. <laughs> so Hoodie and I are going to need to bring cans of Coke yeah. to, the, uh, to the tour. That's the plan, I think. That's actually a really good idea. That's actually, yeah, yeah you can hey, take Chris, that idea. Here's a little can of Coke. Here's you wanna, a can of Coke. Want to chat for a second? Nice and cold. Yeah. Want a little contraband? <laughs> um, Alex, if you were put in charge of disrupting the um, process by which a tour team is chosen. Would you do anything different? Would you, I don't know, would you change the change the process at all? Uh, you know, as a rider, I would love to have much less stress. Uh, it'd be great to have, you know, nine guys told at the beginning of the year in November, okay, this is who's going. You know, you can prepare for it as best you can. Uh, one of you is not going to make the cut, but that'll probably happen on its own. But really, uh, yeah. Like I said, the fear method seems to work the best. You know, Sky's got the fear, BMC's got the fear, Movie Star's got the fear. So you know, it's a little old school, but you know, say la vie. Interesting. Yeah. The fear seems to work. It seems to work. Um, what um, what what kind of fear do you have coming up? We are recording this on Tuesday. You're going to be heading to the U.S. National Championships here here pretty soon. Any any fear going into that race? Uh, I don't know if fear is the right word, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there's some anticipation coming. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited. Um, I just did a bunch of like 45 second sprints and had that, you know, soccer practice pain in my gut, the cross gut feel. I haven't had that in a while. You know, you don't get that at the Dauphiné. You get the long, the long steady burn, but yeah, I don't know. Going there with the, uh, with the wind sprint gut to see what we can do. Well, that's good because uh, the last few years, those wind sprint guts 
I feel like w- those wind sprint prep methods have uh, helped people out because there's been tight finishes at this yeah. race. And Alex, you've been very close at this race before. This, this is kind of the one that's, uh, I wouldn't say the monkey on your back, but it, it has eluded your grasp up to this point, correct? Uh, it's, it's some kind of primate for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, I've uh, been looking for it for a while. I've uh, been up there a number of times. But uh, I don't know. It's it's a it's a tough nut to crack. Um, I don't know. Every year I go in is like a heavy favorite, and you know you, you got to deal with that. Um, you know, end up in a lot of groups. People looking at me like you chase. It's like uh, I mean I will, but you know, I need some help. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Uh, we'll see. You know. Yeah, how would you describe the dynamic these days that goes on at the U.S. National Race, uh, World Tour riders versus domestic pro? I remember back in the day, there used to be um, so few World Tour riders that oftentimes they'd kind of band together to not necessarily ride as a team, but sort of eh, help each other out a little bit here and there because the domestic teams would often be rolling in with like six or seven guys per squad, and the and then it would be like Zabriskie. <laughs> Yeah, I think most of that uh, world tour banding together thing happened uh, what with old horn dog. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, whatever that's worth. But uh, yeah, I don't know for whatever reason. You know, the domestic guys, a lot of them just freaking hate me. You know, the world tour riders. I don't know why. Well, you know, I always try and be nice, but whatever. We're all just dudes. So you know. Was there stress uh, when you weren't sure whether EF was going to take you to the Nationals this year? You know, making that team, um, was that a tough one? <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, they don't, a lot of times they don't want us to do it. Really? Yeah, the, you know, it's a pain in the butt. We have to, like, move bikes around and people and uh, equipment. And, you know, it's like little things like trying to get water bottles for the race. It's like they, they just don't want to do it. So, yeah, there is a lot of stress there because, you know, I'm running my own show, you know, trying yeah. to trying to get all the all the ducks in line so but i don't know we've got a good squad this year nate brown logan owen disco johnny for swan year so should be set yeah that's be a, be a fun trip it's a sizable team for a world tour squad at nationals i feel like like yeah. three guys is yeah i mean nationals. it's kind of a blessing and a curse um because you have a team so everyone's like oh, i'll make your team do it and it's like that that's one dude man right my team is another guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> we already yeah. dropped the other one like, yeah yeah <laughs> i have one team one guy for the team so sorry it's not like rally you know rally's probably got 15 dudes or something there. Yeah. yeah um you know jelly belly always has a number of guys so we don't have the numbers but we got the heart so we'll see how it goes well, I think that's one of the interesting things about U.S. Nationals is that it's, sometimes it does kind of just come down to, like, chaos of the situation. I mean, I remember when Greg Daniel won, and it was like he was, like, getting fed pickle juice from like, <laughs> his buddy who had come out from Colorado to help fill water bottles for him. And then other years, it's, you know, someone will win because they had the most team and they were able to – teammates and able to control the race. It seems like U.S. Nationals is kind of like the official crapshoot <laughs> of bike races. Yeah, it used to really piss me me off the whole crapshoot thing but um i don't know anymore i just look at it as just kind of like a back alley brawl it's like all right let's do this let's see what happens you know maybe i'll lose my teeth maybe uh maybe i won't but let's fight it out let's see what happens back alley brawl everyone that sounds pretty fun i, I like that <laughs> the knoxville back alley brawl yeah. oh ding 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 knoxville <laughs> back alley brawl we have alex house and yeah. some guy from a regional pro team you've never heard of 
Watch out, Dave Toll. I feel like that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good job you're going to do there. Well, Alex, we appreciate you coming on the Villainies podcast. We will be uh, following your progress at U.S. Nationals. We will be absorbing your thoughts and opinions and perspective on the Tour de France. And we'll be following you throughout the rest of the year. So go out there, make us proud, win some races. Thanks, Fred. I'll win. I'll win. Dane, that's, uh, I'm confident <laughs> yeah. in that. I, I'm just gonna put some money on. Well, oh, when I get to Europe, where it's I legal. didn't say I didn't say what I'll win, but yeah. I'll win something. All right, somewhere. All right, probably uh, tour Alberta or something like that. Coming up next, we're gonna hear <laughs> about uh, Nairo Quintana's form from our man Andrew Hood, and then we're gonna get on with the show. Okay, we're back. We had to bid adieu to Mr. Alex Howes so he could go finish the rest of his training ride. Dave's pretty good to have Alex in the old studio. He, uh, I, th- I liked his insight on U.S. Nationals being kind of like a cage match. Yeah, Alex is a witty guy. I like his dry wit. Yeah, you know, I take that back. That guy, psh, man, he's too nice to his rivals. There he is, oh, making friendly with Keel Reinen at the Dauphiné. Yeah, just constantly... Pulling a house, yeah, all the time, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, he, Alex has the door is always open for him to come back and uh, enlighten us on what's going on in the inner workings of the pro peloton and how stressful it is to be on the long list to make it to the tour. So, Dane, um, this week we let's have a little discussion about one of the tour teams that we have our eyes on, and that is the Movie Star team. I think we're going to talk about uh, BMC Movie Star, Team Sky, and a few others in the lead up to this tour. Uh, Movie Star had its media day in Madrid uh, this week. Our very own Andy Hood went there, checked it out, had a couple stories up on VeloNews.com. Um, and, you know, the storyline is still really revolving around this three-headed monster that Movie Star is bringing to the Tour de France with Naira Quintana, Mikel Landa, and Alejandro Valverde. Um, you know, Eusebio Unzue, the team director, he seems to be very confident in this three-headed monster going in with three leaders, but not really because Quintana's the leader, but maybe these three guys are leaders. What What is your opinion right now on Movistar's tactic for going into the tour? I don't know that I think they needed to go with a three-headed monster. I think they, they probably could have given Nairo a year or two more of, uh, of, of chances to do things as the leader. But I also don't see much of a problem with them doing this three-headed monster approach. I think you often hear people criticize teams with no set leader or multiple leaders, and the criticism is, is so often, that ah, just never works. But I think one reason it, it rarely works is that if you have multiple leaders, it's probably because you don't have a consensus winner on the team. You don't have the Chris Froome. And so it's sort of self-selecting. Well, if you don't have that guy, you're probably not likely to win anyway, right? I think Nairo Quintana, though, is a really good rider. I think Mikel Landa, very, very good rider. I think both of those guys could win the Tour de France, Nairo in particular. And so I'm not so, uh, I'm not so concerned about this strategy. I don't think the strategy is doomed to fail. I think they actually have a, a decent shot with this. And I think both of those riders in particular, maybe less so Valverde, to me it's more like a two-and-a-half-headed monster. I think those guys can work off each other. And, and even if it's not intentional, I mean, even if they don't really want to work together, they're both going to have to attack. And in the end, that's going to help both of them, I think. I think it's very interesting the um, PR that they've had to manage Mm, around this. Because, you know, Landa was very public about not wanting to be in Chris Froome's shadows anymore. 
after last year's tour and, you, you know, used that as the reason why he moved teams. But then, of course, he came to Movie Star, where they already have this established team leader in Nairo Quintana. And there's been this constant balance around the PR of saying, yes, we have a three-headed monster, but yes, Nairo Quintana is also team leader, but yes, Mikael Landa will also be given his own opportunities, but yes, Mikael Landa will also be working for Nairo Quintana. So it's been sort of one of, it's been a a real storyline of managing the messaging because I feel like they've just been saying they're going to do everything, which is fine when you're talking about it to a room full of reporters like six months before the tour, but I just really want to see what this looks like in practice because when, you know, publicly you say yes to all these things, but these things just by their very nature are in conflict with one another, like saying, yes, Landa will be given his shot, but also he will be helping Nairo. Um, That just has me scratching my head. Yeah, I think Movistar is one of, if not the longest tenured teams of the Tour de France uh, in various iterations when they were not necessarily Movistar, but a different name. They've been there for a long time. Unsway has been there for a very, very long time. He's somebody that knows, he knows how to manage media, and he also, he's just at a point in his career, I, I just don't think he cares so much if he says one thing one day and another thing the next day, or if he's not really answering people's questions. I think he's got other things on his mind. So when when we go to these events and we ask these questions, these hard questions that we need, we kind of need answers to, I don't think Unsoy really cares to give us, you know, a clear answer. It's just not, a, it's not a, one of his priorities right now. No, and I mean, the proof is going to be on the road. And to, to be fair, we did see a bit of this at the Tour de Suisse. Mm-hmm. So, Nairo Quintana finishes third place overall. Um, he won a stage, and Mikel Landa helped him win that stage. Now, earlier in the race, I believe this was stage four, per- perhaps five, Landa went on the attack. Right in the finale of a stage and almost held on to when he was caught under a K to go. So to me, that looks like a situation in which Landa is all, is given the freedom to fly, but then also he is being utilized to help Quintana. I guess you could raise an eyebrow and say, well, could Quintana have done better if Landa had 100% been riding in service of him? But there's always that what if. But I wonder if you're going to see a similar model to that at the Tour de France. I think that's the model that, that Unsue wants because that's the one that they need to crack Team Sky. And, and to cer- a certain extent to crack some of the other teams who I think are going to be playing a little more conservatively. I think you're going to expect Richie Port and Tom Dumoulin to play a little bit more conservatively considering their time trial abilities and the way that they climb. I think Movistar needs to go on the attack. I think having Landa around just around Quintana to help him if he starts to crack on a climb, I don't think that's going to win you the Tour de France. I think if you want to win the Tour de France, you need to put pressure on those teams, and pressure is going to come from Landa going on the attack and Quintana going on the attack. So whether or not Landa wants to help Quintana, he is going to be helping Quintana by making those long-range attacks, and I think vice versa. That's also true. So in the end, I think they are going to help each other, even if they don't, I mean, they're going to say they want to, but even if they don't actually want to. You Also, if you want to win the Tour de France, you have to have a good team time trial. And so that's one thing that I have some questions about because everyone is saying, oh, you know, Movistar, they have the strongest team at the Tour de France. And I raise an eyebrow at that because I think that these three guys, while strong individual riders, I don't know if they make the best team time trial squad. I don't know if Movistar having Valverde, Quintana, and Landa means they can go up against BMC or Sky 
in the team time trial. I still see them losing time. Yeah, I think that that does give them some leeway to make some of those other selections that, that are not those three guys a little more time trial oriented. And we've seen in the past when they go all out to get a good team time trial, they have a very good team time trial squad when they select around it. And I, they're not going to have all of those guys here, I don't think. But having an Andre Amador there will help. He's good at the time trial. I mean, Valverde himself isn't bad at a time trial. Yeah, Londa's not very good at time trialing. Quintana's not great. But I think they have some of those kind of talents in reserve that they can kind of fill out for their other guys because they do have so many good climbers at the top of their list. And so I think some of those guys that might might be a little less, just lower profile, I think are going to actually kind of help balance things out a little bit. But you're right. I think they are gonna, they're going to lose time to BMC. They're going to lose time to Sky, I would expect, as well. Well, let's hear from Andy Hood. He was on the ground in Madrid for... Team Movistar's tour presentation. I believe he and uh, another journalist, Matt Rendell, have a conversation about Nairo. And uh, Rendell said he saw Nairo training in Colombia, and that Nairo is looking really strong right now. So let's listen in. Here we are with uh, English writer, journalist, man about town, Matt Rendell, at the uh, at the Movistar presentation. Man about Madrid. <laughs> man about Madrid. Yeah. At the Movistar presentation. Yep. Big hype about the team this year, man. I mean, what... You said you were just in Colombia. What did you see? What's your feeling about Nairo in 2018? Uh, I saw Nairo in uh, Tunja in in Boyacá, his home uh, department. Um, spent a bit of time with him. Um, she went out on a training ride with him. I was in a car, not on a bike. I'm not crazy. Um, he looks as well as I've ever seen him look. Um, I've done a couple of long interviews here with him this year for the book. Mentally... Um, he's absolutely ready. Physically, he's absolutely ready. Um, I think the Tour de Suisse result, which has just just passed, is fantastic. I think a third is better than a first. You know, it shows his priorities. Uh, It's all about the Tour this year. And uh, I I wonder if this year's Tour is going to be a kind of watershed. Of course, cycling always teeters on the brink of of kind of total economic collapse, doesn't it? We don't know what's happened to BMC and so on. But, you know, M- Movie Star, they outsource all the sports science. They've got um, Mikel Zabala's um, company in uh, Bilbao who kind of take care of the training and so on. And um, Manu Mateo, who's Nairo's coach, was out in Colombia for extended periods. He was saying um, he's relaxed, he's, uh, he's more mature now, He's in the best shape he's ever seen him, and so on. he's been able to work very in a very concentrated way uh, with Nairo this spring. And, of course, not bring him through too quickly. That's absolutely crucial. But I wonder if it's going to be a kind of watershed tour where, you know, the, 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 the Skies and the BMCs and the... I mean, Trek's another kind of company that outsources to a great extent the kind of sports science. And I wonder if you can still do that. And if Movistar can get the win, then it sort of... Um, it, 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 it would be a kind of triumph for the old way of doing things where you just bring in agencies and, you know, uh, um, instead of having, like Sky, all of these people built into the team and constantly on call and constantly there and constantly communicating among themselves. The, yeah. uh, the big question is, you know, 
uh, these guys have this advantage yeah. living and training in Naira, what, 2,800 meters? That, that's a, that helps Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, Naira was brought up at 3,200 metres. He was brought up on the Alto de Sote, which is way, way up there. So, I mean, that's crazy, crazy altitude. But, yeah, final week of a three-week tour, you know, everyone is, is, is suffering the, uh, the, the fatigue and, and, and effort and so on. And, of course, the guys that have come down from very high altitude... They've got another physiological change going on, which is that mass of blood cells is, is dying and they're adapting to being at sea level. So there's another level of physical wear and tear on them. Um, and this is something I know that Jonathan Vortis has, has observed in Rigoberto, and it's something that needs managing. Uh, and it's an additional kind of uh, you know, factor, uh, as you can feel the body weakening. Now, Nairo does have that, <coughs> that deep... Um, resistance it's always seen him do well in the last stages you know whether it's 2015 with a fantastic kind of randonnée with winner uh, on Alpe d'Huez two two kids from Tunja trying to win the Tour de France which is one of my favorite moments in the 20 or so tours I've I've followed and then of course 2013 about Annecy he's great in that final week but there is this extra factor interesting that press conference wasn't it where um, the, the, having these three leaders is very much being presented as you know I think a, a balancing act in terms of egos because you know if you're not deeply ambitious you ain't going to be up at this level and they all are deeply ambitious of course um, but also yeah but also it's, it's, it's a factor it's an enabling factor for them, uh, and, and they're going to have to make it count, aren't they? Because they've got to keep the pace. No matter what they say, yeah. no matter what Eusebio said about, you know, if Froome's on the starting line, he'll be the favourite, and I know that will be in 100% shape. You know, he's got the Giro in his legs. Nairo knows that very well. So they're going to have to form some kind of alliance, whether it's formal or informal, through car windows or just spontaneous with BMC, Ajay Duzar. Uh, I don't know who else. Keep that pace high. Don't let Froome have, you know, 10 days, 9 days in the, which the, to... The big fear, too, is that uh, Team Sky will take a minute out of everyone in the Team Duntrop, stage three, and that changes the whole dynamics of that whole first week of that race. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I don't think we should use the Dauphiné as too much of a marker. There's going to be... You know, very different-looking teams. Their movie star, for instance, uh, went, you know, in the best possible sense with a bunch of kids, with a bunch of long, young riders, lost, what, two, two three seconds a kilometre. Um, these guys won't do that. You know, you know how good... And Valverde, uh, Valverde, uh, Valverde is very good against the clock. And Nairo is one of those interesting team time trial riders, a bit like Cavendish, uh, or, or, a bit like Cavendish in this one sense. And that is that... Um, you don't expect them to be brilliant team time trial players, but they are. Nairo's very, very, very good at team time trials. So I, I think they've got a big team, and I, I don't think they will get torn apart. Uh, as I say, I think the Dauphiné team time trial is a kind of, um, I hope, a false point of comparison. Because, God, doesn't it always start that when you remember the wind in Holland and Nairo goes into it 140 down or something, and... It always seems to start badly. Uh, let's hope it doesn't. So yeah. you, you were back in Colombia. You said you had a couple of interviews with Nairo. Yeah. What's his mindset now? He's kind of more mature. He's more of a veteran. He has a few wins under his belt. 
does he still have that same hunger to win that tour? Is that his obsession? Or is he kind of taking a universal view of his career and he's kind of satisfied with what he has? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Not satisfied with what he's got. Deeply, deeply ambitious. Um, and I think... You know, for someone like Nairo, not to have won the Tour de Suisse. Um, you know, I, I, I think that... And, and, and this year, what has he got? He got... Um, just try and run through it. Second, wasn't he, in Ori Pass. Second in Catalonia by virtue of Egan Bernal's uh, crash. Um, <clears throat> uh, a, a, a fifth in Pais Basco, uh, where he didn't look good, did he? But um, I think that not looking good is all part of this. You know, he's always gone into those 10-day stage races wanting to win. And um, not winning is, is, is going to hurt, yeah. you know. But that's a pain that he needs to put up with in order to be fresh going into the Tour. So, no, I, um, as I say, uh, Mano Mateo, his coach, <clears throat> was very impressed with where he is. And, yeah, he said to me he's a lot more relaxed and a lot more mature. But I think we have to take that word relaxed in the context of someone who um, they're, they're, he's a little bit like Contador now in the sense that uh, towards the end of Contador the final three or four years of Contador's career that there is one thing that counts for Nairo Quintana now that's winning the Tour de France yeah it gets him nowhere to win a Tour de Suisse and when you actually look at how many you know Rigoberto won the other day didn't he in, uh, in uh, Slovenia um, <clears throat> Rigo's what 15, 16 wins in his career Nairo's in, in, in the mid to high 30s of wins which for a climber is a, 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 with someone who doesn't have that point of speed at the end of a stage that says a lot doesn't it so, um, so yeah uh, he's, he's no longer I think looking to build on numbers he's looking to win the Tour de France yeah. what's the scene like there in Colombia when Nairo goes for a training ride. We've seen some videos where it's almost like a, a, a caravan sometimes. People are trying to follow Nairo. Do people give him, can he get the space to train there? I mean, obviously he needs to put in a mile. He told me a great story about that. 2013, of course, he, um, second in the Tour de France, king of the mountain, stage winner, best young rider, all that stuff. He kind of really explodes into, into the, 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 the very top of world cycling, goes back to Colombia, and there are massive campesino you know peasant farmer protests going on because you know agriculture which is Nairo's world is in a in a terrible mess uh, between you know uh, cheap imports and um, you know with free trade deals going on and so on and so forth so that uh, effectively all the the the, the you know, energy, electricity, fuel, uh, petrochemicals, everything very expensive. Uh, and the peasant farmers, not the big industrial farmers, the peasant farmers where Nairo's come, uh, is in real crisis. Nairo's a uh, crisis, and Nairo's a real leader in that community. And he said, yeah, yeah, they blocked all the roads, the country was totally paralysed, but they always left a kind of little door, and the only person who was allowed to go past was Nairo. Was Nairo now, so, um, so he's got the roads to himself, and he goes out, you know, you've seen the videos and so on, with, a, with a, 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 a policeman on the motorbike, and he's got a security guy in a car behind. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, Nairo gets in his zone, which I think a lot of the times we journalists don't really understand, you know, but he's, he's in his zone. And the, the Colombian fans, even at the tour, the Vuelta, the Giro, are very, very invasive and noisy, and they want 
to attract your eyes. They want you to turn, they want Nari to turn and look at them. And that's exhausting when there's 200 people screaming and shouting outside of us. And the training rides are kind of like that. You know, there are cars, uh, they'll see him pull up, no, no, no. You know, the, the, the photograph, they want some, but they want some acknowledgement. They want him to turn his head. And when, you know, as I say, that, that's an exhausting thing for anyone. But Nairo handles it. Um, I think the big problem this year is um, it has poured with rain for months and months and months. And Nairo's done a lot of training in the pouring rain. But you know what he's like? When it's 40 degrees, who wins? Nairo. When it's minus 10 and snowing, Nairo wins. So, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, all that he stuff is part extremes. of it. <laughs> it all, he's used to the extremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you're a betting man, yeah. what are the odds of him being able to crack? Oh, I'm not a betting Look, um, um, I've never seen Nairo better physically or mentally. Um, he wears that mask. He knows we've just had a big press conference here and I was looking at him, you know, he, he cast his eyes. He knows everyone who's here, you know, he's, he's, he's hidden behind that kind of impassive face. But I, 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 I see him looking good. Um, I still think in that stage win in Tour de Suisse, he could have gone even deeper. And I think there's a little margin. And I was just looking at him while he was giving interviews there. And there's just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of roundness to the face that will come off between now and the tour. And um, I think the cobblestones, he can do okay. He can do okay there. Yeah, yeah. And... Somewhere in there, somewhere in Froome, there is that fatigue from the Giro and they've got to bring it out and they've got to bring it out as a team and one team might not be enough. So to me it's that, keep the pressure on and Nairo has that deep stamina. <laughs> and it's going to win at the tour. I've said it now, it's going to win the tour. Right, there we are. Stuff, I only ever lose bets. Eh, we'll, see, we'll see who wins after that. Right. Okay, well... Do you think any of these guys wins the tour? I think I would. I will put uh, Nairo Quintana probably atop my list of tour favorites. Uh, it's really close. It's, it's him, Froome, and Richie Port. I think, are kind of in a class of their own for me. Uh, but I, I do think if I had to pick one right now, two some odd weeks before the Tour de France, I think Nairo probably would be my guy. I, Froome coming off the Giro it just seems like too much. And uh, as talented as Port is, I just I don't know that I can pick him to win the Tour de France. I feel like I've been burned too many times thinking he's going to be up there even on the podium. So maybe he'll prove us wrong this year. But yeah, at least as of two weeks before, I think Nairo's probably my pick. Very, very, very slightly ahead of those other two. I like it. I like you putting your money where your mouth is. Mm. Yeah, with Port. We're going to talk more about him next week, but um, just the luck thing, man. Yeah. Lightning crashes, Richie <laughs> Port crashes. It shouldn't affect the way we pick it because there are so many of those things that have just been freak incidents that, right. sh- that shouldn't happen. Like, it's not like there's anything about them that makes it more likely that they happen to Richie Port, right? I don't know. I don't, but if they I do, it's, it just keeps happening. It's spooky. Yeah. Uh, Dane, before we get out of here this week, we need to give some props to our countrywoman, Corinne Rivera, because Corinne had an awesome, awesome result this week. 
She won the OVO Women's Tour in Great Britain. She won the overall as well as a stage, holding off Mariana Voss to win. It's her first stage race victory at the Women's World Tour level. Uh, Corinne Rivera, this means a lot to her because she had a bit of a disappointing classic season. Dane, you were there shadowing her. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what does this result mean for Rivera and her 2018 goals? I think it means a lot. I mean, the, the classics were a big goal for her, and the fact that she was unable to perform there was a real frustration for her. But at the same time, she and her uh, sports director told me over the over the classics trip there that the second half of the season was a big goal for her this year. And uh, I kind of like that they put the money where the mouth was and proved that they, they weren't just saying that to be you know optimistic because it's obviously true. She really was in great form here. And I think the fact that she's able to come out with this big win relatively quickly after that classics disappointment and, and then also after the somewhat disappointing tour of California where, where she wasn't quite at the level that I think some people expected her to be. I think that's a big statement for her. This is a really big race. If you talk to women's riders the, in the women's peloton, they love this race. They feel like uh, it's actually up to the standards of what a professional race should be, which is not so true, I think, of a lot of the other races on the women's calendar. Uh, and I think they really they hold this race in high regard, even if it is relatively new as a race. So for Rivera to win this, that's a big deal. Yeah, and uh, during the race, she gave an interview that's been getting a lot of treatment on Twitter in which she was asked about her specialty as a rider. Is she a sprinter? Is she a climber? And she basically said, I'm a bike racer. I try to win all the races. In fact, you don't want to hear me summarize this. Let's let's hear this uh, this interview from Corinne Rivera. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective because I feel like in the modern era of cycling, we tend to assign everyone a label. Oh, Corinne Rivera is a sprinter. Oh, you know, uh, Mara Abbott is a climber. And it's true that uh, these riders are very proficient at some of these skills, but to have the mentality to say, you know what? Okay, I have a great sprint, but I can win a stage race. You know what? I have a great sprint, but I can climb. You know, I I I, I find it really refreshing. Yeah, and I think in the in the women's peloton in particular, you need to have that mentality if you want to be one of the best, because that is the kind of mentality that Anna von der Breggen has. It's the kind of mentality that Annemiek van Vleuten has. Uh, Mariana Voss, these are riders who you throw them in a flat stage, they're going to attack from 30K out and win. You throw them in a super hard climb, they're going to outclimb everybody. And you, you want to have that all-arounder ability, I think, to really be one of the very best. And so, yeah, that's a, I think it's an important mentality to have. Yeah, I mean, Mariana Voss, she won the Giro Rosa one of the years where there was just a ton of really hard climbs in it. She also won that London Olympic race by breaking away on the flats. Yep. And she's won cyclocross races. Tracks. I mean, she's the ultimate expression of what it means to be an all-around bike racer. So I think all bike racers should have that mentality, should have the Corinne Rivera, Mariana Voss Particularly mentality. some of the Tour de France sprinters, the guys who like abandon the minute the road goes up. It'd be nice if some of them would just stick around a little longer. Yeah, you know? come on. Make yeah. it through the mountains, yeah. lazy sprinters. Yeah. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Honestly, please leave us a rating. And yes, comment too. That really helps our searchability, helps new people find the podcast. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at Facebook 
facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The News podcast is produced by News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Soul Drums.